This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning. This is case 65 in the Blue Cliff Record. A non-Buddhist questions the Buddha. Engel's introduction. It has no form and yet appears. Filling the ten directions, it is boundless. It responds spontaneously, arises in emptiness. Understanding three when one is raised, detecting the slightest deviation at a glance, though you may be so powerful that the blows fall from your stick like raindrops and your shouts sound like thunderclaps, there is not yet this is not yet equal to one who awakens. What is the condition of such a person? See the following. The Koan case. A non-Buddhist once asked the world-honored one, I do not ask for words, nor do I ask for no words. The world-honored one remained seated. The non-Buddhist praised him, saying, The great compassion of the world-honored one has opened up the clouds of my ignorance and enabled me to be awakened. Making his bows of gratitude, he departed. Ananda then asked asked Buddha, What realization did the non-Buddhist have that made him praise you like that? The world-honored one said, A fine horse starts even at the shadow of a whip. Secho's verse. The great wheel turns not. If it turns, it goes both ways at once. The brilliant mirror on its stand, in a flash, beauty, ugliness are discerned. Beautiful and ugly, distinct. Clouds of illusion open. No dust is found in the gate of compassion. A fine horse watches for the shadow of the whip. It goes a thousand miles a day. So the Blue Cliff record has an introduction and then a koan and then a verse. The verse is by Master Secho. The introduction and the koan is by Yango. Um, ancient Chinese masters. It's a hundred koans. Uh, this case also appears in the Mumon Khan. Uh, I inclu- took, took it from the Blue Cliff because of the uh, introduction. And that introduction says and reveals the koan to us. It has no form, yet appears. And there it is. Here it is. The form that we see, taste, touch, hear, think of, is formless. What does that mean, to see the formlessness of appearance? If you answer this question, you completely see into this koan, into your life. What does it mean 
to see into the formlessness of appearance. In the verse at the end, it says, the great wheel turns not. If it turns, it goes both ways at once. It turns not because there's no need to look elsewhere. There is no elsewhere. Yet it does turn, meaning if we turn, turn it in our life of realizing it, we see for ourselves that the appearance is formless, and the formlessness is the appearance, is the form. So it turns in both directions. The opening verse says, though you may be the introduction, though you may be so powerful that the blows fall from your stick like raindrops and your shouts sound like thundercaps, this is not yet equal to one who awakens. I have to say that the image that came to mind was uh, uh, Roshi Shugan. Um, exactly this. He doesn't shout. It doesn't hit. He's not into power. And yet, all of that is not yet equal to one who awakens. And though you may seemingly have, for the moment, enormous power, It is in your awakening that your true power becomes fully yours. This is the whole point of being here. I am continually astonished and happy when I see people practice in an ongoing way where they're coming into their enormous power, which is no simple, easy journey. It's a fearful journey because so much has to be relinquished, so much that we've relied on to get us to this place has to be questioned and looked into. And the relying on has held us in good stead in many circumstances. And yet, what we want something more than just to rely on something outside ourselves. We want, when we want our own life, then what we rely on that's outside us no longer holds, can't hold. It is in your awakening that your true power becomes fully yours. So, how so? A non-Buddhist once asked the world-honored one, the Buddha, I do not ask for words, nor do I ask for no words. Speaking or not speaking, having or not having, describing or withdrawing from describing. These are the words of our society, have and have-nots, Freedom or not freedom. Marketing words that we buy literally into. 
But look where the non-Buddhists are coming from. And look where you are. We're being asked to put down our rose-colored glasses of having or not having, of speaking or not speaking. It's not that there isn't truth in those two perspectives, but it is the truth of a blind person touching an elephant. Yes, the description is true as far as it goes, but what's missing from the blind person's assessment of their touch, what's missing from their appreciation of what is before them, it's so limited, and in its limitation... There's a lot of pain, a lot of assumption, a lot of knowledge, none of which is very helpful. So we're being asked to put down your glasses, to open your eyes and see past this way of speech or this way of silence. In this koan, what the non-Buddhist is really saying is don't give me any kind of explanation. I got that. I know all that. Don't give me any kind of talk. I've read all the books. I've studied the Dharma. Or in this case, have not studied the Dharma. But studied, practiced. Don't give me any kind of theory or ideology. But at the same time, just don't sit there and be silent. And that's a challenge. You know, one of the wonders and allures of Zazen is, as Daito Roshi would say, uh, we get to put down the backpack, put down all our stuff, and just be. Just be. Maybe the only place in our life We can just be. But in our zazen, we can't just sit there and be silent. It's okay, as far as it goes. And we need to do that after a lifetime of yakety-yak. voice and mind. But as we go deeper within ourself, we can't be frozen in our zazen. We can ask more of ourself. So the non-Buddhist is saying, please help me. You can't give it to another person. And they have to be able, ready, and willing to receive what can't be given, to receive what's already within them. It may be with already within them, but they're blind to it, or at least have thick rose-colored glasses on. And this is the challenge for each of us of awakening to our true self.
It's already, we're already awake. But we have to be ready and willing to receive what can't be given to us. And so the Buddha remained seated. What is it to just sit? On the face of it, it would seem to be silence. But the non-Buddhist said, don't give me silence. That won't help me. So if it's not silence, what is it? How are you going to enter into this? How are you going to enter into this? The Buddha just sat. Is this a matter of silence or no silence? If it isn't silence, what is it? As you may know, the highest form of Zen practice is called Shikantaza. And Shikantaza is just sitting. When you're asking, what is Mu? You're asking, what is just sitting? What is this moment of me? What is really this moment of me. What is this me? You're asking that, not as an intellectual question. Not in words. You're actually doing it directly. Absolutely directly. With nothing between you and the inquiry. And if you try and grasp that and understand that, then it's no longer a direct inquiry. It's a question, then. It's words, thoughts, which the non-Buddhist and hopefully you are not interested in, in this context. When you're being your breath, what is the breath? What does it actually mean to be the breath? It's actually indescribable. We can talk about it, that there's nothing between us and this breath. We can give a report on what our experience of it is. But none of that is actually the breath. So what is the breath? What does it mean The Buddha just remained seated.
seeing into your true nature, you must see that the Buddha just sat. Is the Buddha falling into speech? Is the Buddha falling into silence? What is the Buddha teaching? Just sitting. He's teaching the Dharma. And the bedrock teaching of the Dharma is that all Dharmas are inherently pure. Do you know that's another way of saying that you are a Buddha? Inherently? That you are awake inherently? But also all dharmas are inherently pure. Inanimate things teach the dharma because they too are inherently pure. What is it that inanimate things teach? To hear the teachings of the inanimate, you have to have the mind of rock and river and tile and cloud of traffic of horns beeping. Your discriminating mind cannot hear the teachings of the inanimate. Nevertheless, rivers and clouds are constantly teaching, as is the Buddha. How will you receive these teachings? We're not speaking of suppressing thoughts here, or projecting thoughts, or creating some mind state to receive these teachings. It's not a dead mind or some type of particular type of mind that responds to the non-Buddhist's question. The Buddha just sitting here is completely alive completely awake, completely responsive, and offering the formless hands of Kanon, the thousand, thousand hands of Kanon, to the non-Buddhist, to say nothing of offering it to you and me. This might seem to, to be a secret teaching, It might seem to be something we can't grasp with our mind, and that is correct. It is not graspable. It's not definable. It's not holdable. So how are you going to get this seemingly secret teaching of the Buddha? A secret which is wide open. It is as open as all that you can see, and hear, and feel at this moment, but it is not contained by anything that you see, and hear, or feel at this moment. 
It lies beyond the three worlds of form, formlessness and desire, of past, present, and future, of nowness or you, me and other, or oneness or wholeness. This is the direction that your questioning must take. What is this? Who am I? The questioning in such a direct form that we don't need the words of the question. We just need the breath. We just need the awareness of this moment. We just need Mu. It's been said that you must think the unthinkable. And the Buddha just sitting there is unthinkable. It's uncategorizable. And this is why we say that inanimate things preach the Dharma. There's no thought involved in this. There is no form you can grasp. On the contrary, it's cutting through all forms. And yet, there's the Buddha sitting. And the non-Buddhist came to great awakening. Why did the non-Buddhist come to great awakening? What happened? You see, you too are sitting there right now. You too are the Buddha in your zazen. You too are the non-Buddhist asking for neither words nor silence. You don't have to go outside yourself to see into the non-Buddhist coming to awakening. You just have to see yourself as the Buddha, just sitting. How are you going to do that? The world-honored one remains seated. The non-Buddhist praised him, saying, The great compassion of the world-honored one has opened up the clouds of my ignorance and enabled me to be awakened. So I ask, What is the great compassion of the world-honored one? What is your great compassion? Do you know you're looking at me through the eyes of Avalokiteshvara? Have you considered that as a possibility? That that is your true form? What is the great compassion of the world on it? What is your great compassion? Making his bows of gratitude the non-Buddhist departed. Ananda, his attendant, then asked Buddha, what realization did the non-Buddhist have that made him praise you like that? The world honored one was very kind. (laughs) 
There are a lot of ways he could have answered that question very, very directly. But the Buddha said, he's like a fine horse which starts even at the shadow of a whip. So this alludes to the herd of horses that students are sometimes compared to. So a fine horse moves at the shadow of a whip. The slightest hint, off she goes. second kind of horse, the whip touches the skin. Show me what to do, they ask. It's honest, it's wholehearted. Show me. So a little more touch there. The third horse, the horse is moving, but has to be whipped. Told again and again, drop the repetitive thoughts. Don't get involved in measurements of progress. Don't measure your zazen. Don't grasp it and go for goals. Goals. And still that tendency is there over and over. The fourth kind of horse has to be whipped vigorously and methodically. Just won't do what they're being asked. Their way is the only way. Now let's be clear. All of us have at one time or another been one of these horses, all of these horses. There's no singular horse here. This is an analogy. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to look at our practice. Look where we over and over again get stuck. Rest. Rely on the teachings and the teacher for things that we already know. But just won't trust within us. And yet notice that the non-Buddhist asked a question and got an answer. There's also the fifth horse. And that's a dead horse. And no matter what's being offered, they ain't moving. They're dead. So sometimes it's worth asking ourselves, what kind of horsefulness are we practicing? As you know, probably I came back from New Zealand and was there about five weeks, traveling with Aho. And we also traveled with a friend of ours, a close friend of ours that we've known for close to 40 years. She's a born-again Christian, and um, we've been very close, uh, we've been neighbors, actually through several episodes of being neighbors when we were in Colorado, um, raised our, our children together, um, 
she babysat uh, our son while I or Eho or both of us attended many session. That's a week babysitting. It's not actually babysitting. It's co-raising children together, which we were doing anyway. Um, completely devout and serious about her practice. A non-Buddhist. She had never sat. And she went on this trip with us. And in the course of the trip, I visited five, five Zen centers, four within the mountains and rivers order, one not. Gave talks, uh, led a weekend workshop. Uh, we did morning and evening sitting when we weren't in Sishun. She did all of that. She didn't do the Sishun, which was appropriate. But she did everything else. It was a lot. And um, she's extraordinarily humble and honest and very, very Christian. And the first time after she'd received beginning instruction, she sat for a couple of rounds. She said, can I speak to you? I said, yes. She said, um, And she couldn't speak. And then she said, uh, my mind was silent. If you didn't hear what I said, my mind was silent. And she said, it says, be silent and know God. It's the first time she sat. This is from a life devoted to questioning, to asking real questions. This non-Buddhist, her silent mind, St. Augustine once said, it took me years before I realized that reality has no form. The thing is that our minds, our discriminating minds, can only deal with forms. The thinking that most of us do is thinking in words, and word associations. It's thinking by associating forms, and to some extent, it's finding relationship between forms. And this is looked at as the ultimate in thinking, the relationship between our thoughts and forms. What does this mean? In regard to St. Augustine's, it took me years before I realized that reality has no form. 
What does it mean when Dogen says, think non-thinking? To see Mu, to see deeply into the moment of this breath, or into the full silence of Shikantaza, we have to be able to see the fullness of non-thinking. This has no form. And though non-thinking is present, there is no form that can speak it. And yet, formlessness is in appearance, unspoken. Filling the ten directions, it is boundless. It responds spontaneously, arises in emptiness. Filling the ten directions. Wherever you look, you see form. No matter how far you look, it's boundless. It responds spontaneously. It's there when you look. It arises in emptiness. Hakuin Zenji, the great uh, Japanese Zen master, speaks of this koan. He says of the Buddha, neither yes nor no, neither ordinary, mortal, nor bodhisattva. Where do you see the Buddha? If it's neither yes nor no, nor ordinary, nor mortal, nor bodhisattva, where do you see the Buddha? Where do you see yourself? The non-believer has gone beyond the traps of yes or no. He or she is not caught up in the tangle. And that tells us we're encountering someone who's gone deeply into the way of practice. And although she hasn't accepted the dogmatics of Buddhism, perhaps not even the Four Noble Truths, but she's also opened up questions about her own belief system. What the non-Buddhas saw is someone of great wisdom, and someone who also have seen through the traps of form and emptiness. There's a dilemma here. And Hakuin puts his finger on the, on the non-believer's dilemma. Having come to know, as far as the place where affirmation and negation, yes or no, are one continuum, here they get stuck. Seeing separate things is easy, right? I mean, we can see everything as separate. No problem. Looking further, we can begin to see interactions, connections, the effects of actions. The, quote, interpenetration of things.
And if you sit, you'll see this clearly. I affect you and you affect me, and from there it goes. But to see this as our own body and mind, to see that we are one, or more fundamentally how all things are empty, one, empty, as our own body and mind, our own experience of this moment, is to awaken. There's no intellection there. It was obvious to the non-Buddhist. It's not obvious to Ananda. What did he see? He just sat there. I was once uh, traveling a distance with Daito Roshi. I was his attendant at the time. And I asked him a a question I probably shouldn't have asked him, but that never stopped me. Um, I asked him about another practitioner, um, a prominent practitioner, and where they were in practice. That takes a certain amount of arrogance and nerve. But he's no fool. So he launched into a very specific graphic description of that person's strengths and weaknesses and how they just don't let go. They just don't let go. You know, um, I try and steer them, but they won't let go. They'll come in koan after koan and just stick at the same place. Then he had a few semi-nice things and And I sat there, pretty stunned, because I knew who he was talking about. (laughs) Son of a bitch. Well, that's probably uh, how Ananda felt. So this fundamental insight of oneness, emptiness, personally realized, is not the property of a religion or Buddhism, or anybody for that matter. It's a pointing to something true about the nature of reality, and specifically our own heart. That's the realization, that it is our own heart. It's not something about something. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just you. And so we see it. And then what? I mean, you know, in a small way this happens. People come into Daisan, Doksan, um, and they've been practicing a while, and they've, you know, 
they got their checklist of questions and they tear off that sheet and go to the next checklist of questions and tear off that sheet and checklist of questions and it goes on and on and on and on. And that's fine and it needs to happen and it should happen and in one sense will never not happen if we're truly practicing. But at some point, they come in with their checklist of questions and they crumple it up and throw it at me because they realize this is not what it's about. The Buddha just said, this is the great mystery of our being. In our sitting, in the Buddha's sitting, is a beckoning, an invitation to your life, to enter the dance of your life, to throw open the doors of your heart, of your life, to relax into your life. It's not just you or me. As you're awakening, which is what you're doing, all beings are dancing with you. All beings are awakening. What a gift we are being given. Because we too are awakening as all beings are awakening. And so, the Buddha just said, Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.